Over the last 13 weeks, we've been in this series called Return, and this morning we bring it to a close. And I realize that for some of you, the thing that you've looked forward to most each week is seeing if we could, in fact, go this entire sermon series by titling every sermon with the word that begins in the letters R-E. Today's sermon is titled, Remember? And so, yes, my friends, it can be done. All things are possible with our God. Some weeks were easier than others, quite frankly. Some weeks took a lot of prayer and a lot of time spent on thesaurus.com. But this week, this week it was easy. Nehemiah gives it to us in a simple little prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. What does it mean to live a life of significance? What does it mean to live a life that's worth remembering? Nehemiah's little prayer should make us ask a little deeper question. What does God remember? What is significant to him? Two weeks ago, I went home to Missouri to bury my grandmother. She was 98 years old. She lived a full life. And it was her time. And when she passed, when her hour came, she passed surrounded by her children. And she passed with her favorite hymn playing in the background, How Great Thou Art. And as I was driving back to Missouri, driving back home, it just hit me how much this has been a long season of death. Death in our world, death in our country, death in our community, death in our church. Just this week, death in the deep forest. Between Mark and I, we've done 11 funerals in the last seven months. It's a lot of death. And I don't say that in any way as though doing those funerals is in any way A burden, it's quite the opposite. That is a joy, and that is a privilege. That is sacred space. And I'll say again that I will gladly outlive each one of you so that I can marry and bury all of you. And yet, what if that happened this year? What if that was just around the corner? How would you be remembered? Thinking about your own mortality isn't very fun, yet alone hearing a sermon that reminds you about it. And yet the Bible is clear that only the fool lives like he'll live forever. Living with an awareness of our own mortality is the avenue to wisdom. And wisdom is the avenue to immortality. In fact, we have an entire book of the Bible that's devoted to wrestling with the significance of life. The book of Ecclesiastes is nothing more than a search for significance in a world that is filled with so much vanity and insignificance. He asks the question, is there anything about this life that isn't ultimately swallowed up in death? Because what is life? What does it mean when death lies at the end of that corridor for all of us? What is friends? What is family? 
If the only time we have together is the time we have on this side of death. Considering our own mortality is a good thing because it calls to question how we live. And there's nothing quite like a funeral to bring those questions to the surface and make us wrestle with the significance of our humanity and the significance of the life of the deceased. That's why no one gets up at a funeral and says, you know, when I think about Frank, I just can't help but remember how incredible his landscaping was. Or did you know how healthy his 401k was? Didn't Frank just always get so many likes on his Facebook posts? What a guy. No, we search for the significance of their life. It's strange how death reveals our desire for a life of significance. Yet at the same time, our life reveals our proneness to insignificance. How much time do you give up with your kids to spend it on your phone? How much time have you thought about how to word that perfect social media post instead of thinking about how to use your words to encourage a friend? There's something within us that desires a life of eternal, immortal, divine significance, and yet there's something within us that is so quickly and so willingly swallowed up by the insignificant. This whole biblical story is one that begins when immortal significance was traded away for the insignificance of a piece of fruit. Their problem is our problem, and here we are. What does it mean to live a life of significance? Nehemiah had to wrestle with that same question. Most likely he's writing these words at the end of his life or somewhere near it. It almost reads as though he's writing his own obituary. He's looking back over everything he'd done and considering the significance of his life whenever it seems as though everything that he had given himself to, the great work of his life, in the end, he was nothing more than a failure. Because did you hear how this book ends? It does not end on a high note. This is not Hollywood. The last two weeks, Mark has walked you through this long rededication ceremony. At the end of all of this time, the wall is finally completed. And so the people gather in what's called a covenant renewal ceremony. And they dedicate the wall to God. They dedicate the city to God. And they rededicate themselves to God. And they do that by remembering their identity and the story that they live inside. They remember their failures. They remember their past. And they confessed all the ways that they'd fallen short. And they remembered the future and the purposes that God had for them as a people. And they renewed their commitment to live as his people. And all this brings us through chapter 12. So here we are. The walls are rebuilt. The city's restored. The people have rededicated themselves. And Nehemiah's work is done. And he returns to Persia. Boom. Mission accomplished. Drop the curtain. Roll the credits. But then he gives us Nehemiah 13. And he invites us to come and wrestle alongside him. Because sooner or later, you're going to look around. You're going to see a world, if you're willing to look at it and see it for what it is, you will see a world that is pursuing vanity, and you won't have anything to do other than just say, remember me, oh my God, for good. And in chapter 13, everything falls apart. 
Just as soon as Nehemiah is gone, everything he's tried to build starts to crumble. So he returns to Jerusalem, and once again, he finds that Israel is a complete and utter mess. So what's he find? Well, the first thing he finds is how Eliashib, the priest who oversaw the temple, had worked out a deal with Tobiah to allow him to use the temple like his own personal storage unit. The chambers that were supposed to be used to store the tithes and offerings of the people for worship, well, they were given to Tobiah so he could keep his personal belongings safe in the most secure part of the city. And then Nehemiah saw that they really didn't need that space anyways, nor did they really use it because the people had stopped giving their tithes and offerings. And since there was no tithes and offerings, the priests were forced to go out and work in the fields in order to survive and make ends meet and put food on the table. And since there were no priests, then there was no worship. But the people were fine with that because on the Sabbath, they didn't come to Jerusalem for worship. They came to buy and sell their goods in the city to enjoy the nice weather as they took a stroll in the farmer's market. Nehemiah found them working in their fields, harvesting their crops, treading their wine presses on a day that was supposed to be devoted to worship and rest and finding real blessing. And then lastly, Nehemiah sees that Israel had married their sons and daughters to foreigners that hadn't converted to the faith. Worship wasn't a priority for them because they, were raising their they weren't raising their children in the faith. And in fact, they didn't even teach them the language of Hebrew, which means they didn't really care to raise their children in a way that would allow them to operate and live among the community of God's people. Worship wasn't a priority for the parents, so why would it be for their kids? Everything that Nehemiah sees the people doing are the very things that they said they would not do just two chapters before. They are people that are filled with confession, and yet there is no commitment. There's no commitment to change. There's no commitment to lay hold of what God would have for them. We have to be reminded that we can fall into that same trap. We can be filled with all sorts of confessions about ways that we're broken. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. We're all broken. We can confess those things. And yet, is there any commitment to lay hold of those promises that Jesus offers to us? We're called to something so much more than just to confess, but to allow that confession to drive us to a God of grace and to a community of faith. We live in a time in which everything in your life is trying to make this space in your life insignificant. You have to be able to see that. And so I would urge you this morning to not just be full of confession, but to realize any ways that your commitment to this place and this people and this purpose is lacking. Especially for us as members, because we do not just make those vows before one another, we make them before God to support the worship and work of this church. And the people are not filled with any commitment whatsoever. So how did the situation get that way? What happened to dissolve away all of their commitment? And when did everything begin to crumble? Because Nehemiah comes back and he sees all sorts of problems and all sorts of issues, but they're all related. They all derive from the same problem. It was when 
Israel no longer remember the Sabbath. It was when Israel neglected worship. It was when worship was no longer important. It was when worship was no longer necessary. Just, it just became this accessory, this add-on to the subscription of life that they wanted to live instead of being the very point of the life that they were given. Worship no longer fit into their life because they felt like it no longer had any value to their life. Why? Because, hey, the walls are rebuilt. The city is restored and full of life. So the fact that they lived in a nicely manicured community with low crime and high property values somehow made them think that they were safe. Who needs God when you're surrounded by so much blessing? And this is why Nehemiah is so disheartened because he says in verse 18, do you not have any idea what you're doing? Don't you see? Don't you remember? This is the same thing that your people, your fathers did. These are the very things that they did whenever they were sent into exile. Don't you see what you're doing? And you have to feel for Nehemiah. Remember, this was his life's work. God put this extraordinary purpose in his heart and to see all of it fall apart this way. To realize that he spent the entirety of his fortune to see the people become all that they had called to be, and yet they wanted nothing to do with that. After all of this time and all of this work, Nehemiah just finds the people right back where they started. They didn't care enough to remember the past. They didn't care enough to remember God. And so they didn't care enough to remember worship. Because how did Israel express, actively express a desire for God? It began with remembering the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was what made them unique. The Sabbath was what set them apart from a world that's just going in some downward spiral of vanity. The Sabbath is what set them apart in the midst of a commercialized and industrialized and profitized, secularized, politicized, marginalized world that offered all sorts of gods and all sorts of promises for them to base their life on and pursue significance. And God gave them the Sabbath to make them different. The Sabbath was at the heart of their identity because worship was at the heart of their identity. And worship was at the heart of their identity because that was where God wanted to meet with them. And when I say worship, I don't just mean showing up and singing a few songs in your preferred style at the most convenient time of day. The Sabbath teaches us that worship is far more significant than that. The Sabbath is when we remember God is our creator. Six days he worked and he spoke all things into being by the words of his mouth. We remember he is our creator. He is the giver and sustainer and taker of all life. He is the God that brings peace from the chaos. He brings order to the unrest. The Sabbath is when we remember that we're creatures and we are dependent upon our creator. The Sabbath is whenever we remember our need for rest and God's desire to give us rest. Because in rest, that's how we actively remember that God is the source of all the good that we have. God invites us to rest and tells us to stop working, stop planning, stop toiling, stop wrestling, so that we might be rescued from thinking all that we have and all that we are is dependent upon our hard work. 
We can always think, oh, I just I gotta get this done, I gotta get that done, I gotta get this, I gotta get this accomplished. What if, if I don't do it, nobody else will? And God just says, Stop. You think I can't bless you on the other six days? Give up all your work, give up all your toil, give up all your worry, and come and find me. Why? Because you can rest. Because I am the God that is for you. The Sabbath is when we remember our greatest needs are spiritual, not material. It's how we remember the voice of God is more important than the voice of our favorite news pundits. The condition and mess of my heart is more important than the condition and mess in my home. Eating the Lord's Supper is more important than doing your meal plan for the week. Placing myself in community is more important than looking ahead and seeing what's next so I can be ready for the next event on my calendar. Life is more than food. Life is more than drink. Life is more than clothing. Life isn't about me. I need grace. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. I need Jesus. I need worship. And all of this is at the heart of worship and why the Sabbath is, was, and always will be so important. Because in it, God just asks you some simple questions. My friend, my beloved, my son, my daughter, will you stop and remember who I am? Will you stop and remember who you are? Will you remember my significance in your life and the significance of the life that I want to give you? Make no mistake that the importance we place on worship reveals the importance that we place upon God. Because Israel fancied themselves as the people of God, yet their neglect of worship just revealed that they really didn't want anything to do with him at all because it's not like they were ignorant of his promise that that is where they would meet him. And so, of course, when Israel neglected worship, it reshaped how they lived. And how they fall apart is the same way we fall apart. When we neglect worship, it reshapes how we live. It reorganizes our priorities. Why? Because it causes us to lose sight of what is truly significant. And Eliashiv, he was the priest who stopped caring about the favor of God and instead he chased after the favor of Tobiah and gave him that sacred space in the temple. We know that, don't we? How easily do we worship at the altar of the approval of others? Instead of pursuing the favor of our God that he says is ours. We can so quickly give others that sacred space in our heart to feel okay, to feel accepted, to feel loved, and to feel significant. And since worship felt that it was no longer of value to Israel, then they had to think, why would we, should we give our tithes and our offerings to support it? So their lives just became about the accumulation of wealth and keeping up with the Joneses and storing up treasure where moth and rust destroy. And even though the coffers were full, why did they still feel so empty? Why was there a hollowness within them they couldn't shake? And since worship wasn't a priority for the parents, then why would it be one for their children? In the ancient world, you didn't marry based on modern notions of romantic love. It was about a consolidating resources. Love was a part of it, of course, but it was much more than just a rom-com. It was a marital alliance to protect and promote the interests of both families. And so marrying their children off to people outside the covenant family 
revealed where their priorities were because they just wanted to set their children up for success in this world and it was more important than the world to come. We know that trap, don't we? I know that trap. How we can invest far more in our children's education and physical health as though the gates of heaven are just opened wide with bachelor's degrees and low blood pressure. We can beat the drum of homework and yet remain silent on the issues going on in their heart. We can chauffeur our kids around town to every single event and we forget to take them to the Lord Jesus in worship and in prayer. And so when Israel neglected worship, what was the end result? The end result was that they were ultimately choosing a life of insignificance. Why? Because everything they were doing and everything they were trying to build would ultimately die with them. What good is your social status or profit margins when death comes? What's all that money in your bank account going to buy you when death knocks on your door? What will the favor of others give you whenever you lie in your grave? What is it for a man to inherit the whole world yet lose his soul? Israel had laid aside worship because they chose to look for significance apart from God, not just in this generation, but all the ones that came before it. A pursuit of significance apart from these promises that God offers to his people. And Ecclesiastes says exactly what it is and calls it for what it is and just says, my friend, I want you to know that's nothing more than a life that's chasing after the wind. Significance can only be found in him because only in him can anything be found that isn't swallowed up by death. And it's only in worship that you'll find him. And make no mistake that he is the God that wants to be found by you. Because when God talks about the Sabbath and the importance of worship, he doesn't just talk about what he wants you to give him, as though he needs 20 bucks. He talks about what he, the significance of what he wants to give his people. He talks about the significance of what he wants to give you. God sent this generation of Israel one last prophet, one final prophet before 400 years of silence. His name was Malachi. And Malachi comes along with an invitation, and he says, this is the word of God. It's one big invitation to come, to bring your tithes, bring your offerings, bring yourself, and return to me and worship. And then he says this. He says, put me to the test. Put me to the test. Give yourself to me and put me to the test and see if I will not open the heavens of blessing for you. In Isaiah 58, he says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and honor it by not going your own way, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. I want us to be a church that lays hold of that promise. I want us all to take a ride on the heights of the earth. I'm someone who dreams a lot. You typically find me with my head in the clouds. I think a lot about what could be. I think about the future and what could happen and 
what the future might hold and all that God might do here at Rockwell Prez. I think about retiring here and being the guy that just sits out there in the pews and just gives that next young buck that takes over a hard time all the time and telling him what I think ought to happen. I think about a new church building where we can all be together and hear our voices as one. I think about more space and more classrooms and our children filling those classrooms and the baptisms and the people that God might bring us all along the way and all the fellowship events that we will have in a lifetime together. I even dream about having a cemetery next to that new building where all of our graves would be next to each other so every time we come to worship, we can remember the saints who've gone before us. A cemetery where we can say, this was my church home. This was my family. This place was at the center of my life. And I want to be buried and laid to rest here so that when Jesus returns, I can rise from my grave next to my brothers and sisters and we can enter into glory side by side. I dream about missions and being in more countries and all the places that God might take us and all the encounters that you will have with him in the Kali Ghats, in the deep forests of this world. I dream about our presence in this community and praying that we would actually be a people that creatively and sacrificially think about how to invest in it for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. I dream about how maybe God might stir hearts in crazy ways. Or maybe somebody might come along someday and think, you know what? I don't want to just serve Mobile City. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to write a check for it. I'm going to write a check and buy up Section 8 housing or poor locations in our community so that I can build an empire based on gospel kindness, gospel justice, gospel equity, and gospel goodness. And yet, what are all of those dreams without worship? What do any of those things matter apart from worship? Without worship, they'd just be monuments to our own greatness. They just give us statistics to support our own self-congratulations. What are any of those dreams without worship? What is all of that without passion for this space where God promises to meet with us? What's a building if God doesn't fill it with his presence? What are pews filled with people if those people do not sing to the rafters? What is outreach and social progress if it doesn't lift hands to God? What is missions if it doesn't ultimately open mouths to sing his praise? What is Rockwall Prez without worship? What do we have to offer the world without worship? What is life without this space where God promises to meet us together? And it's just receiving bills and running after bonus checks. And that seems really insignificant. And God calls us to so much more, and so might the biggest dream that we have together be that we would be a people of worship. Worship that melts the heart of the skeptic. Worship that comforts the heart of the afflicted. Worship that gives joy to the sorrowful. Worship that calms the fears of the afraid. Worship that offers freedom to the addicted. Worship that makes people say, God is in this place. 
Worship that reignites marriages and restores homes. Worship that rescues us from all of the vanities that we pursue and awakens us to the significance of a life in Christ. Worship that drives us out into this real world with real hope and sees real change. Worship that takes us for a ride on the heights of the earth. Worship that gives us a glimpse of the beauty, the glory, the majesty of Jesus, our creator, our God, our King, our Lord, our life. What is more significant than that? So where are you at this morning? Maybe this morning you feel like one of these Israelites. You've struggled to make worship a priority. And oftentimes you find yourself not caring. And you find yourself so easily devoted to other things. And maybe today is the first time you've come in a while. And if you're honest, maybe you came this morning because beneath the surface, life feels a little bit insignificant. And you hope that today might be different. Maybe today you might encounter God. Maybe today God might be willing to encounter you. But at the same time, you don't want to get your hopes up. Or maybe you feel like Nehemiah. You have tried to make worship a priority in your life. But sometimes you just feel like, what does it all even matter? What good is any of it? You look around at your life, you look around at your problems, you look around at the world, and you see what he did. You see the world in its pursuit of vanity, never slowing down, never looking up, always chasing after the wind, and it drags your soul down, and you think to yourself, what good is any of it? God, do you remember me in all of this? God, are you even doing anything? However you may feel this morning, I'd like to extend just a really simple, basic invitation to you. I invite you to come back to church. I invite you to come back to worship each and every Sunday. Because that is the invitation of Jesus who promises to meet you here. And if that is true, then there is no more significant place that I could invite you to be. Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, which means that Jesus is your rest, Jesus is your life, Jesus is your significance, and he invites you to come and find him in worship. And I know this, Jesus is at work in our worship. Because I know that Jesus has been at work in our worship. And if you don't take my word for it, then take Texas Monthly's. You remember June 6th, whenever we went to Mobile City to worship with them. There was a reporter there that night. And after we had scheduled the event and we were busy preparing for it, Kenny got a phone call out of the blue just a couple of weeks before. And the woman on the other end introduced herself and said, is this, you know, Mayor, Chef, Kenny, you know, the man, the myth, the legend? And he says, of course it is. <laughs> and she said, uh, she introduced herself and said her name was Sarah. She said she was a reporter with Texas Monthly, and she 
write stories about small towns in Texas, and somehow she'd heard about Mobile City, and so she called him because she thought it might be an interesting place to write a story about, and then she just asked Kenny, she says, does there happen to be any community events coming up that I could come to? Kenny said, why, as a matter of fact, there is. And that article was published this week, and it was beautifully written. And at the end of the article, she actually included herself in the story. She wrote about her own experience as someone who isn't actually a professing believer, and yet in it she reflected on her own life. And quite honestly, I was floored that she did. Here's what she wrote. When I meet Kenny, he's gearing up for an ambitious Sunday gathering in the park with his church, Rockwall Presbyterian. One parishioner is cooking 600 tamales. And Phillips is making the street corn, pico de gallo, and beans. He bought the ingredients from La Victoria, naturally. It's been raining in North Texas for days and days, but the skies part on June 6 for the big Sunday bash. Two pastors stand at a microphone near a bounce house, running for the occasion as the kids squeal. About 130 attendees, 100 from the Rockwall Church, and 30 from Mobile City. A successful turnout by Phillips Measure all sitting in folding chairs under the shade of a cottonwood tree, shedding little puffs of white that occasionally float across the horizon. The sermon is about fellowship. The question's asked, who is someone you would die for? I am distressed to find no names come to mind. My parents and older brother would kill me if I sacrificed my life for theirs. I am thoroughly 21st century in the way that I've remained unattached into my 40s. No husband, no kids. I've lived for stints in Ecuador and Austin and New York City. But what holds true about all these places is that I've rarely known my neighbors. Kids shift in their parents' laps and audience members fan themselves with programs as I stare at the soggy, clover-covered ground, thinking of all the ways I have avoided the very attachments that might root me. My eyes missed up at such a simple display of community. Did you know Jesus showed up for worship that night? Of course he did. That's where he promises to meet with us. That's where he promises to meet with you. That's where he promises to go to work and expose all those ways we've settled for insignificance in our lives. And he invites us to rise to the significance of a life found in him and take a ride on the heights of the earth. What else might Jesus do among us? What significance does he invite Rockwell Prez into? Might we devote ourselves to worship and find out for the glory of Christ and the life of the world? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we come to you and we recognize that we often get so swallowed up in vanities. We get so swallowed up with the insignificant. There's all sorts of pieces of fruit that we find in our lives that we grasp at, that look good and satisfying to 